Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, November 14, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Now, before we get started this week, I want to make a general announcement. Now, we started this podcast almost exactly a year ago. In fact, our first podcast on Democracy on the Move was November 22, 2020, where we talked with Vermont State Senator Christopher Pearson about an organization known as National Popular Vote. And since then, we've had conversations with a fairly wide array of people, including book authors like Ann Nelson, Bobby Bostick, and Jeff Ward. We've also provided a list of commentaries from yours truly on topics ranging from Julian Assange and voting rights and fascism in America. But when it comes to politicians, we've talked only with members of the Democratic Party. Now, I'd like to think of myself as being non-denominational when it comes to political parties, so I've tried more than a little bit to balance things out with perspectives from both the Republican and the Democratic parties. I've also tried to get representatives from the Green Party and the Libertarians as guests on this show, and the only people that answer the phone, however, are from the Democratic Party. In fact, members of the Democratic Party have approached me unsolicited and were willing to get on the air and discuss their views and connect with the people. But I just want to make sure that you, the listening audience, understand that I've done and continue to do a fair amount of due diligence when it comes to attempting to book other political parties in this podcast. But the fact is, I can't even get an acknowledgement from anyone. I've even tried to book a representative from the People's Party on this podcast, but they simply don't answer my inquiries. Now, as a side note here, an interesting story here about the People's Party. They did answer me when I told them that I was considering running for office under their banner. So right away, they contacted me. Next thing I know, I'm being interviewed for the position. Now, during the interview, things fell apart pretty quickly because uh, we started talking about Julian Assange, and I gave them my well-researched opinion about Julian Assange. And needless to say, it's not a very good opinion, as I believe the guy is more of a hacker than a journalist. Anyways, they pretty much wrote me off at that point and didn't even follow up with a rejection letter. So needless to say, they are not interested in being a guest on Democracy on the Move either, although I do keep trying. So the bottom line is that if you know of anyone in the Republican Party or the Green Party or the Libertarian Party, hell, even the Birthday Party, <laughs> please, uh, please help me get these people on the air here at Democracy on the Move. We'd love to get their perspectives on the air, and yes, I look forward to the opportunity to challenge them. I promise I'll be kind, but I will challenge them nevertheless. So today we're talking with Tim Shepard, who is running as a Democrat to fill the U.S. Senate seat position being vacated by outgoing Republican Roy Blunt. Yes, this is the beautiful state of Missouri, which leans heavily toward the Republican Party. And if you recall, a few weeks ago we talked with Spencer Toder, who is also running under the Democratic ticket to replace Roy Blunt. Now, it's an exciting race. We have a plethora of Democrats and Republicans gunning for that seat, and I suspect we'll also see the Libertarian Party going for it as well. And we might just see the People's Party show up on the ballot as well. In fact, the People's Party is currently gathering petitions for running statewide offices in, uh, in the next election. So Tim Shepard was raised in Kearney and Excelsior Springs, Missouri, which are just north and slightly to the east of Kansas City. He's an entrepreneur, husband, father, and activist. As a child, he saw his family accept help from their local church when his mother was denied health insurance due to a pre-existing condition. His family also helped organize volunteers to help those who didn't know where their next meal was coming from. 
They also shopped at their small-town food pantry. Now, Missouri and its people have shown Tim what it means to take care of one another. And over the course of his life, he has experienced what it's like to live by that principle in both rural and urban areas. So, Tim, uh, thank you for joining us today on Democracy on the Move. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Dan. It's so great to be here and uh, to be celebrating and, and the process of our democracy and the democratic primaries as we all gear up and, and get ready for the general election and get people excited and ready to vote. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting election, I think. It's a midterm election, which since the Democrats have the presidential seat at this point, the odds are going to be stacked against them. But it's it's going to be fun to see you know, how all this unfolds and, and where it goes. And so let's get to this. As a Democrat, you understand that Missouri can be, you know, downright hostile to Democrats and their principles. So what principles do you personally bring to the table that you think will make you a, a successful senator? Well, the interesting thing is that I actually grew up um, a Republican and, and pretty indoctrinated into the uh, into the ideology that Democrats are, you know, were evil or bad or, um, you know, all the things that Ann Coulter might hurl at us as insults uh, were definitely things that I was being uh, uh, surrounded by in in my childhood. Um, I didn't become a Democrat actually until uh, I was coming into my adulthood and I, I was actually reflecting on my values growing up as a Christian of, of loving our neighbors and, and taking care of the least of these. And I started to find that um, the policies that, that we have in the Democratic Party tended to more closely align to, to the values uh, that I was brought up with in my faith. And, and I started um, seeing the impact uh, that that was having on people's lives. And so I think that that's really uh, a transformational story. I think it's it's powerful to be able to go up and, and talk to our neighbors about um, my journey towards uh, a different political party than the one I was raised in that, that, in my view, aligns a little bit more closely in terms of their policy outlook to, to helping people and, and to taking care of the least of these. So just out of curiosity, then, is the rest of your family still part of the Republican Party? Uh, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. There's definitely a Republicans in my family still. And um, the interesting thing is whenever we all get the chance to get together and to talk to each other, we just we're family at the end of the day. And uh, and that's been really encouraging because I know the, the political tone in this country is so hyper-partisan and it's always about brinksmanship and how the other side, you know, each of the partisan groups lean, lean into our message that we alone have a vision for this country or we alone can save this country. And at least in my family, uh, we really love each other and, and have grown to respect each other, uh, even when we don't always agree on, on how to solve a problem politically. Well, your family's, uh, I, I would suggest your family is somewhat of an exception in that area. Um, I, I come from a family where uh, we have to make agreements to just avoid certain topics because um, it could turn into a food fight after a while. Um, Absolutely. So, but that being the case, I mean, you know, you're, 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 you're gunning for Roy Blunt's seat here, and He's not going to go quietly into the night. I mean, he'll enthusiastically campaign for whatever Republican makes it to the top of that heap. 
And yeah. as much as I despise it, I mean, these guys fight dirty. They pull you into a dark alley and attack you with knives. So um, are you really prepared to go the distance in this environment? Well, I think, uh, yeah, the answer to that is a resounding yes. Uh, I caught my teeth politically, um, actually, in activism, in the, in the activism space. And uh, I was working for a, a large Wall Street firm. They have about $690 billion in assets under management. And uh, it came to my attention um, that we that we shared... A headquarters city with the largest for-profit prison operator in the country. Wow. Now, this this employer had been absolutely phenomenal to me in in LGBTQ rights activism, but when it came to uh, going up against the for-profit prison industry or saying something about civic specifically, they they were not enthusiastic at all. They wanted me to be silent, and. Uh, you know, rather than going quietly into the night and, and complying, I decided to to go ahead and, and uh, use my voice. And I went and I spoke out against Core Civic. And in the face of having uh, my job threatened, my bonus stripped, and uh, my title as the chair of the employee resource group taken, uh, I'm very proud to say I stuck to my integrity and to my principle. And uh, Happily, uh, that firm no longer trades for-profit prisons one year later after the process began. And um, and so I think that was a really an important moment for me. And it's it's part of the preparation for this race uh, to be able to go up against uh, people who play dirty and who, who will come for you. Yeah. Well, you put it all on the line there. That, that kind of reminds me, we had uh, uh, back on August 8th, we talked with Wanda Bertram, who's from the Prison Policy Initiative. We talked at length about uh, not only private prisons, but a lot of the services in prisons, like phone calls and, and mail and things like that, are are just racking up all kinds of uh, costs on the prisoners themselves or their families. Uh, you know, yep. you're talking about you know, $20 a minute for a phone call or something ridiculous like yeah. that. Um, yeah, a terrible I, industry. <laughs> yeah, hats off to you for uh, for uh, for you know standing up and and saying something about it. It's, it's an ongoing problem, and it's um, I was surprised to find out that Wanda told me that there's not that many private prisons out there per se, but the the services are 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 just atrocious. I mean, you talk about you know trying to get money from people that don't have money. This is it's a, absolutely ridiculous. Oh, it's terrible, and the way and the practice that practices that they use for their employees as well. I mean, it's just uh, it's a horrible uh, structure where they're trying to get contracts from the state, and the way that they win those contracts is by trying to underbid what it would cost the state to operate the prison. And the only way to do that and make a profit is to, uh, you know, obviously you have lobbyists and you set up structures to try and incarcerate more people, but the other nasty component of it is you end up treating your employees and the people who work in the prison just like not good at all a lot of them are gig workers and and they just don't a lot of money yeah um and uh, it's just a not a good industry all the way around yeah they're not paid enough to care kind of reminds me of that old joke back in the 1960s i think it was where uh, they were you know one of the astronauts was sitting on the launch pad and they're you know they're starting to count down and everything and he's he, he muttered something like uh Something like uh, to think that this rocket was built by the lowest bidder. <laughs> so, yep. 
I, you know, I, I kind of feel that way with our prisons too. I mean, it's uh, people undervalue uh, uh, the, the people undervalue prisoners. Period, and they they put a lot of them in their prison, and, and the only way to stay in business is to put more people in prison. Yeah, um, starts to explain how we have three times higher the incarceration rate of any other rich country in the world. Yeah, yeah. If you ever looked at the Prison Policy Initiative website, there's a lot of good information there. On uh, they did just one of the main purposes of that of that in, of that uh, organization is to gather statistics. So, um, anyways, we're diverging a little bit here. I, I want to talk about some of the big issues affecting not only people in Missouri but the whole nation. You've, um, yeah. I took a look at your website at the issues page of your website. I went through it in detail. Uh, in fact, you probably saw a couple of my emails last night when I was going over it. I saw a couple of grammatical errors that I sent to you from my Gmail account. Um, I, it, but, I caught those. Thank you for sending those through. We got those corrected. Oh, good, good. I just uh, want to make sure everything looks good. I don't know why it is. They call me the grammar Nazi at, uh, at work. Anyways, uh, you listed eight major topics of interest uh, or eight major issues of concern on your campaign website. I'll number them off right here. There's health care, education, faith in our democracy, human dignity, ecology, equality for all, economy, and jobs. I know I shortened the titles a little bit, but that's basically it. Um, yep. And I think it's in that order, too. So let, let's talk about health care first. That's one of my one of my personal concerns here. What's your vision? Uh, give us the Reader's Digest version, anyways, of what your vision is of healthcare, uh, vision of healthcare in America. Well, the the top line vision, the the easiest way to say it is that every single American deserves to have access to high quality healthcare, and so that is going to be my number one objective uh, as a United States senator is to make sure that we make that happen. Uh, in terms of the vision of, of what that looks like, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and it's certainly a complex industry, uh, especially regarding the insurance middlemen uh, who, who um, are in the business of denying people access to the healthcare they need, quite frankly, uh, in order to make a profit. And so we've got to figure out a way uh, to work with uh, the insurance industry to make sure that we can get Americans access to the coverage they need. Um, and I think the, the biggest pushback that we get when it comes to actually making healthcare for every American happen is, you know, in the insurance industry, there's hundreds of thousands of jobs at stake. And the idea okay. of going to single payer system is, is where we end up getting a lot of the political opposition. And I think we need to cast a vision for the country where it's possible for us to to be able to get um, a system where every single American is able to have insurance that's guaranteed by um, by the state, uh, and uh, if that ends up creating you know political pushback, then we have to address where that pushback is coming from, and we have to look at it as a long term investment and and create some retraining programs, maybe set up some pensions for people. Um, to give them some assurances that their job is still going to be there. Um, we can actually all work together and make sure that all sides win um, because any any extra expense in the short term is well worth it in, in the span of uh, 20, 30, 50 and, 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 you know, continuing on in perpetuity. Right. Years. But that's pushing a boulder up a hill, though, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, like you say, there's a lot of lobbyists out there that are pushing heavily for the insurance industry. You've got hundreds of thousands of jobs, as, as you cited, that are involved in the healthcare industry 
and what what could you do in a way that would not put a lot of people out of a job, I guess? I mean, th this is a really yeah. tough nut to crack here. Well, I think it's, uh, I look at it, We when I was working in the private sector, we moved our world headquarters from uh, one city to another. And um, the way that that package was sold to uh, the shareholders and to, to the people who could say yes or no to the decision was, hey, we're going to spend a little bit more money for five to 10 years. It's going to double our expenses because we're going to double our headcount, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but after that five to 10 year period, we're going to realize major, major cost reductions stained for this, this period of time. And I think it's kind of like that when, when we're looking at changing something as big as how the insurance industry works. And, and we've got to come together, you know, as Americans and say, hey, we all agree that every American should have access to health care. Um, so, uh, in the in the grand scheme, it is going to save us a lot of money getting a, a system that enables all Americans to be insured. If it costs us more in the short term, let's say for 10 to 20 years, we're guaranteeing people who work in the insurance industry uh, some kind of a living. Um, I think that there's just there's a lot of room to be able to negotiate, not necessarily with the lobbyists, but but the political reality isn't just the lobbyists. In this case, it's the people. Uh, and, and we've got a lot of room to negotiate uh, and make sure that people are able to, to come out of a systemic change like that and, and be whole. Um, and I think that's really the, the top level of that conversation needs to be around uh, making sure that as we make these changes to the economy, Healthcare represents a third of the economy, that we're doing it in a way where all the stakeholders, including normal employees, uh, are able to, to feel confident that the changes are going to be good for their family, too. Well, uh, that's that's a like I say, that's kind of a, a tough nut to crack. Uh, I think Obama took a shot at it and ended up, um, you know, with with the you know, I call Obamacare or the, the um, yeah the, the so that was it's still a lot of criticism coming from the right on this one, and I suspect that part of it is due to the lobbyists. I suspect part of it is due to the fact that we have this thing called Citizens United, which allows basically un amount, uh, an unlimited amount of money to be put into yep. these super PACs and yep. lobby against, lobby directly with the American people against these, these, uh, uh, against these new policies that you're proposing here. So that's a tough one. That's a tough one. But um, let's move on, though. I want to talk a little bit about education. And it's it's become a hot button issue. Parents nationwide are storming in the school board meetings and demanding to be heard. Now, I personally yeah. think it's good in a way because it's you know it's nice to see that citizens are getting involved in local politics. Uh, yep. But many of the grievances, I argue, are largely manufactured, especially the part about critical race theory. But in fairness, you know, I did read an interesting opinion piece in the Washington Post a couple of days ago. And it was called What School Board Moms Really Want and Why Candidates Ignore Us at Their Peril. And yep. the opinion piece didn't convince me, but it did say, as far as I can tell, that because COVID kept their children at home, parents are suddenly waking up to the content in their kids' school material that are focused more on racial and gender sensitivity issues than on basics of math and science. 
Now, the, the reason why I was not completely convinced of this, because I thought it was a bit of BS, because parents all along had the ability, and might I add, the responsibility to always examine their kids' school material. So this is nothing new. This is nothing yeah. that came out of the COVID thing. But setting aside my personal disagreements, the opinion piece does bring to light uh, a simple fact that a lot of parents are thinking about it, right or wrong, whether or not you agree with them. So yep. in light of that, in your opinion, what needs to be done in our education system today? I mean, where do you think education is heading in this country? And what can you as a U.S. senator do about it? That's such a broad question. Uh, so I'll start in a, with in 100 words or less. Uh, <laughs> I'll start with addressing the the sort of brinksmanship, the partisanship that you hit on. I think that the root cause of that, and you hit on it uh, on on the healthcare note in particular with the super PACs, is the the unlimited money in politics, and and what that has created is this environment where you have super PACs that can they don't have limits on contributions. And so any billionaire can write a check for a hundred million bucks. And they do. I've got call time lists with those people that give that much every single two years. And, and they're able to really influence the narrative heavily. They, they're able to, um, you know, inject things into the discourse and, and get people riled up and they're incentivized to get people riled up uh, because that's how, you can fundraise. So partisans on all sides are guilty of this. The Republicans do it and they use critical race theory and they talk about how evil Democrats are. And, you know, the Democrats do it because we alone can save democracy. The, the progressives do it because we have all these popular policies that all of the Americans want, but we need to win more power in order to, to get our objective passed. And so uh, I think that what we're seeing with the, all of the outrage that's been generated around uh, schools and, and curriculum and education is is a result of that. Uh, and I think a, a good way to, to sort of quash the outrage machine would be to have contribution limits on super PACs. Um, and I think a lot of that will start to naturally disappear. The, on education itself and where I think it's going, my daughter is nine. She goes to the, the local public school here. And, um, you know, we have parent-teacher conferences. And as far as I can tell, she's, um, you know, re learning to read and, and learning arithmetic and division and multiplication and, uh, and science and all the things she needs to learn uh, in order to have uh, the skills to be able to uh, take control of her life as she matures and grows. So I think our K through 12 education system, for the most part, it is run very locally. And I don't think that the federal government really should step in too much there, aside from making sure that we're able to equalize um, access to, to, you know, what people are able to get in terms of their education. So a problem that does exist uh, as far as I'm concerned at the federal level with, with K through 12 education is because a lot of the state funding formulas are so localized that you have really wealthy districts that are able to pay their teachers really great salaries and attract talent. But you have a lot of poor districts that, that end up closing uh, mm -hmm. the school for a day out of the week uh, in order to save on utility bills, for example. And I think that the federal government can play a huge role in making sure that uh, we're able to equalize that uh, 
equation and make sure that teachers are getting paid, you know, a professional and living wage that's commensurate to their education and making sure that our children are getting the education they deserve. Well, there's been a lot of accusations lately, and um, it's not just Missouri. I'm seeing it happen in a lot of different states where there's this drive toward undermining public schools for the benefit of creating private schools that are publicly funded. And it's getting kind of nasty here in Missouri. Uh, do you yeah. have any uh, awareness of this? And uh, what what do you think uh, we need to do about it? Well, I think that is a structurally, that's quite a similar issue to what we talked about with the for-profit prisons. And, um, you know, I think if, if people want to send their children to to private schools, that's great. And that's their choice. But it's not really something I think that the that the state should be paying for. Um, I think that there is room for compromise on it, if that's a way to be able to move forward, uh, then then I would be willing to to say, okay, well, if you want to send your kids somewhere else and get a voucher for it, then you're going to open the door to um, the private schools having to be accredited by, you know, the yeah. state and the same bodies. And um, and if that's something that you're willing to do, then then we can talk as long as it doesn't take any funding away from, uh, you know, from the public schools, because right. um, you don't want a situation where kids end up getting less service and less education than they need and deserve because the funding formula broke on them. Right. Uh, and you certainly don't want a situation where there is no educational standard. Uh, and that can happen very quickly when you start to fragment the system. And then the last component is this profit motive, you know, where, where there would be all of these institutions making profit from the state giving them taxpayer dollars in order to educate our children uh, and the kinds of decisions that that companies end up making in order to guarantee a profit. It just it doesn't look like um, the most sustainable path to me, to be quite honest with you. Uh, so I, I tend to favor um, a guaranteed universal public education. Yeah. And I think that's what, uh, from what I understand from the earlier uh, incarnations of public schools, which started out in the early 1800s, our founding fathers had that in mind to have public schools that raises the uh, public education level to certain standards. Yeah. And that's been yeah. a very successful process. Uh, it's worked. Yeah, it's but but I, I look at Missouri here, and I ran this calculation some time ago. So forgive me if my brain is just a little bit foggy in this area. But we people talk about funding private schools where the money should follow the student. If you look at the public schools, according to the formula that Missouri uses, I think it works out to about five or six thousand dollars per student. In other words, when yeah. a student attends a public school, that school is now budgeted that much extra money per year to look after that student. And so the people that are behind the movement to have the money follow the student, if the student goes to a private school, guess where that extra money goes to that private school. If you take the fact there's at least in Missouri here, yeah, in Missouri here, there's like 120,000 students uh, by one poll that I saw uh, that are in private schools. So you do the math and you figure out it's almost $700 million in, in the neighborhood of $700 million that would come out of the public education fund within Missouri. So we'd either have to fund that with additional tax increases and eh, right. that ain't going to happen. Right. So, 
uh, it's just going to. Yeah, people don't want to pay for it at the end of the day when they see the real cost of that. Right. That it's just I don't see the viability of it. And um, yeah. And also, you have to keep in mind, even within the public education system, I went to Kearney School District, and I think when I was there, they spent somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, the district with the state and the district's funds combined, spent somewhere in the neighborhood of about $7,000 per student per mm -hmm. year. And, you know, Liberty and Park Hill School Districts, not too far away, spent almost double that. Wow. Uh, and, and they levied uh, local taxes to be able to pay for that. And so I think, you know, school district like Carney were able to achieve educational excellence, which is great right. on, you know, less money. Um, but at the end of the day, they had a few less services than some of those other programs have. And so the whole theory of private uh, operators being able to eke out a profit while, uh, you know, increasing services that are available on the amount of money that the state gives, it just doesn't really add up to me when you start looking at how funding formulas actually work out. Well, yeah, because you're, you're dealing with private industries that need to make a profit, right? Somebody wants to get rich off this at some point, and so they're going to start taking some of the money, and that's money that would uh, normally in a public school system would be reinvested into the students. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, let's move on here. There's a, there's a couple more topics I'd like to discuss here before we, uh, wow, we're already, wow, already half hour into this. I'm having fun. Uh, there was, there was a recent article in Reuters and it was entitled, it was entitled COVID-19 fading as the dominant political issue as Americans focus on inflation and economy. And in the article, they cited the results of their a recent poll of theirs. And I'm going to like paraphrase their opening paragraph here. It says, Americans are increasingly turning away from the coronavirus and focusing their attention elsewhere, especially toward rising consumer prices and other economic areas where Democrats are less trusted. The polling yeah. shows that a shift could be uh, that a shift will favor Republicans in the next year's midterm elections. So given all that, I mean, I, I looked at your website. I'm going back to your website again. I'm looking at the at the issues in your website and coming in toward the bottom of the list is uh, is uh, the economy. And so in light of these recent developments and, and in light of this poll, I would think you'd want to bounce it up toward the top because it seems to be becoming a hot issue, especially with the inflationary fears that are going on these days. Now, Democrats are clearly, clearly on the defensive here. And so what specific ideas do you have on the economy to address these recent concerns that you know, appear to be affecting the Democratic Party nationwide? Well, I want to push back a little bit on, on my platform, having the economy at the bottom. Uh, I think that if you look at my website and the platform, it's uh, probably the most robust platform that's published out of the Democratic field right now. And it was hard to get everything on there in a in a concise way. So I'm very proud of it. Um, but oh, the, absolutely. The idea I, behind... it, it's an easy website to navigate. I compliment you there. That is um, really a um, very, very good you. job on that one. Yeah. Uh, so, so what, 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 all I mean by that is um, that the economy is is a, a topmost concern for me. You know, I come from a working class family where uh, my dad, you know, makes less than I paid in taxes when I worked in finance. Uh, and um, that's pretty and easy so to believe because you can make a lot of money in finance. But but go ahead. 
uh well I, I wasn't a millionaire i was just one of the staffers but um and i i so i come from a working class background and and i'm still very much uh in in that lived condition and uh so the economy is really uh it's crucial to everything i i think uh, the way that i approach it through from a policy perspective is that we have amazing opportunities to improve our economy and to improve uh, people's lives with things as like climate change, for example, as we tackle that. Uh, that is uh, not just of strategic importance for the United States to remain uh, in a very privileged position that we currently uh, are very lucky to have that our, you know, my grandparents worked hard for. Um, but climate is really like the big issue, the big challenge of, of our generation. And in every challenge, there's huge opportunities. And so I think I'm really excited about a lot of what's in Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill that just passed. I think they're going to do a lot of good for the economy. And I think moving forward, uh, investing more into uh, solving climate change, that's not that's not a wasted investment into the money pit that's that's new technology and innovation that's going to create the wealth of the future uh the great new fortunes of the world we have big tech right now that happened in my lifetime and i think uh in my later years we're going to see similar things emerge from investment in climate as we as we tackle that problem and solve it and it's going to create millions of high paying new jobs and and create opportunities for people um to be able to uh be able to do better well i think that's a good idea and i think that it, i don't know who it was i was talking to on a recent podcast but um he said that missouri is actually um, a pretty good state for wind generation and I, I started thinking, um, yeah, and I started thinking that it actually is uh, a lot of jobs in that, right? And uh, and another person, I don't know if I talked to or I heard this in the news, I tell you, everything just kind of blends into one thing in my brain here, but I, I, I was told that uh, West Virginia actually has more jobs in clean energy than they do in coal. So yep. that is... Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I, if I were you, I'd punch that up on the website a little bit more because say, you know, this is this is the this is the future. If we don't do it, China's going to jump in there and do it. I mean, we're already buying our solar panels, a lot of them yeah, from China. Like so, right, should be manufacturing those panels right here, yeah. at home. And then, you know, the other the other benefits. If you look at Missouri's energy portfolio, I think close to eighty percent of our energy consumption for electricity comes from coal in this state, and yet we have really high wind and solar generation capabilities that's that's a win in terms of manufacturing and, and union jobs but it's also a win for our farmers and landowners in this yeah. state to be you able bet. to diversify uh, their income streams uh, in in you know pretty reasonable ways so yeah. as we as we look to eliminate our consumption of coal which doesn't really produce any jobs in this state we can create new ones in uh in green energy in the green energy sector as well as uh give new sources of revenue to uh missouri farmers in particular family farmers 
that's that's really that's a that is just a win-win situation i I just wish that um you guys would put that message out there you guys being uh, the democrats basically would put that message out there a little strong a little more strongly and perhaps this uh, infrastructure bill might do a part of that because there's a huge investment in uh, renewable energy within this new uh, uh within the new uh, infrastructure bill so um, yeah. I can just hope that uh, people eventually catch on and figure that out. Um, so I'm going to move on to something else here. It's 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 kind of like touching a nerve here for a lot of people. And and here it is. It's January 6th. And yeah. it, it appears to be a bit of an elephant in the room, and pun intended, um, because you know, we mm-hmm. as Americans mm-hmm. witnessed essentially an attempted coup on our government. When we yeah. talked about this last week with Henry Martin, uh, who's running for U.S. Congress, 6th District, um, I guess it includes where you live right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, when we talked about it with Henry Martin, it nearly brought him to tears. And here's the thing. He's an Army vet who's been in combat and is, and is part of a proud family tradition of military service going back generations. Yeah. He felt it was a stab in the back. I mean, the thing is, our armed forces make a deal with our politicians. The armed forces still, they'll, they'll fight the fight to defend our democracy. And all they ask of our politicians is to protect the home front and ultimately protect the Constitution. And so after right. all the sacrifices of generations, Henry had to sit and watch as his own nation turned against itself. I mean, led largely by the politicians that were sworn to protect the Constitution. So. Yep. I'm personally a little bit frustrated about this. I, I, I tweet about it a lot. Uh, I have to ask a question. Why is it that the Democrats aren't making more of a big deal out of this insurrection? Why is it that we have politicians in our midst that clearly violated their oath to protect the Constitution? And by the way, it should be thrown out because of the 14th Amendment. And yeah. the Democrats seem afraid to bring it up. The, the act of insurrection and betrayal is bad enough. But the lack of outrage and courage over this travesty is deafening. So on your back to your campaign's list of issues at coming in at number three is restore faith in our democracy. This, I think, is extremely important. And in light of January 6th, uh, of the insurrection on January 6th, what is your plan to restore trust and faith in our government? Well, number one, it's going to take time we didn't get here overnight and a lot of the the systems uh that have led us to this place of brinksmanship and uh you know looking at our neighbors and saying they're not american enough um they have their roots and i you alluded to it with citizens united earlier um and I think that's when we started to see the gap widen there's a structural element at the core of all of this where um, because of unlimited contributions and un, literally unlimited money from individuals in politics, uh, what that ends up creating is, is an environment where uh, you have a zero-sum game. And it's, it's something the Founding Fathers actually tried to prevent from happening because mm-hmm. we end up a race to the bottom. That's why they created the system of checks and balances. And so we've got to put a cap on contribution limits. That's number one, the structural issue that is a must have in order to get a a more civil form of politics back. And so what I mean by that is since, uh, since Citizens United 
became law and since we've seen the flood of money come in and and frankly illegal coordination between political campaigns and super PACs um they're able to obscure that in interesting and clever ways but it happens all the time and what ends up happening is uh in order for us as a political party you know and i'll talk about democrats here um in order for us to sell a vision to our constituents um, we're very prone to say that you know we care more about democracy than you know our friends across the aisle or in in the intra-party fighting for example that happens within democrats moderates versus progressives you know it's a common refrain for progressives to take a message out to their base and say the moderates it's the moderates fault well i've been to the most rural parts of this state and i've talked to a lot of self-identified moderate democrats who want to save our democracy they want to invest in climate and making sure that we don't have that problem and they want health care for everybody so all the polls are out there 70 to 80 percent of americans agree with our policy so why can't we pass them and the reason is simple. we don't have a moderate versus a progressive problem or a republican versus a democrat problem we've got corruption problem and systemically what what's happening is in order for the respective partisan groups to be able to raise money they're leaning into the most extreme components of their coalitions and they're 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 leaning into outrage because outrage sells and it gets you to move and it gets you to vote and the only way we're ever going to stop that vicious cycle and and be able to work with each other across the aisle again without having this uh, betrayal effect that happens within your own party is to get rid of the influence of a single person to be able to have a million or a billion times more influence than an ordinary American. We have to lean into our values that are inherent in our Declaration of Independence, for we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and I like to say people, mm -hmm. are created equal. And, 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 you know, we are destined to have a, a self-government. And as long as we, um, as long as we are in this cycle of uh, my side, your side, uh, we're, then we're just a house divided, quite frankly. And, and I don't see that changing as long as campaign finance stays the way that it is. Yeah. Have you ever heard of that organization called Move to Amend? No, I have not. They're, uh, you should check them out. Uh, we actually had them on our podcast. Uh, let me see. I think it was actually almost a year ago on December 20th of last year. We talked to uh, their main organizer, Caitlin Sapozzi Belknap, I believe is her name. Move to Amend is an organization that proposes uh, putting out a, another amendment, a, the 28th Amendment, I believe it would be. And uh, if, you, if you look at their website, it's right there. It says um, there's several sections to this amendment that they're proposing. But the very first section one says the rights protected by the Constitution of the United States are the rights of natural persons only. And that, yes. that's the direction of, of where this thing is going. They're getting a lot of sponsors. Uh, check them out because they are looking for people such as yourself. Once you are a senator, and we hope you are. Uh, that uh, you can sign on to this, uh, to this, uh, they're trying to get, I think, 100 sponsors, 100 congressional sponsors for it. Yeah. And take a look at it because it basically is intended to unwind the damage of, of Citizens United. 
Yeah. And I, I'm not even sure if Citizens United was even a good decision. Could we reverse it in the Supreme Court? Yeah, but that's going to take like, you know, a century and a half to do. And, <laughs> no, we need legislation. Yeah. Well, it's driving the country apart. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I completely agree. And, and when I talked to Caitlin about this uh, last year, and I'm just going by my memory right now, she said this isn't something recent. She said that uh, yeah. Citizens United was just one more in a long process of... Yeah of movements exactly. toward this corporatocracy that we're, that we're moving into. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the 20, I believe it would be the 20, I think there's 27 amendments. Now this would be the 28th amendment and, uh, take a look at it. Uh, that would be move to amend all one word, move to amend.org and, um, get in touch with them because uh, maybe they can help uh, throw some, some support your direction. I look forward to getting more familiar with them. And thank you so much for the suggestion. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it just hits the nail on the head, right? Yeah, you, yeah. you hit on a word also, um, corporatocracy, which I think is true. I mean, I think uh, because of the way that Citizens United is worded, that, that America more closely resembles a Russian oligarchy or medieval uh, feudalism even yeah. uh, in, in many ways. Um, but I want to be very clear because, because uh, every single partisan group uses super PACs mm -hmm. in order to try and beat the other party and take our vision to our people that we alone can fix it. Um, that it's not just a, a corporate problem. It's an, it's an individual problem where you have uh, folks like the Adelson family, you know, Miriam mm -hmm. Adelson. Now she's a Republican, but Democrats do this too. Uh, they've given over half a billion dollars of the Adelson family fortune to Republicans via super PACs. Now for me as a candidate, I'm limited to $5,800. That's the max donation I can take. So how on earth is, is an individual family able to give half a billion dollars over right. a decade? And the answer is super PACs. And, uh, and, and you start looking at that structure and how a uh, super PAC is able to coordinate with, uh, with a campaign committee. And you start asking questions around, uh, you know, how, how would they bribe a politician? Well, they might offer to say, hey, you don't need to worry about paying for television airtime in your race because the super PAC friends of is going to pay for it for you. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we've got to fix that. Absolutely. It's individuals, yeah. it's not corporations. Well, here, here's another question for you. And, and this is actually, uh, I'm, I'm dovetailing into my last question, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, second part of my last question I'll ask first. And that is, assuming that you become senator, how will you avoid the trap of dialing for dollars? And I, I hopefully you know what I mean when I say that, dialing for dollars. <laughs> I sure do. It's my number one, uh, you know, complaint about this whole entire process and what's supposed to be a representative democracy. I'm supposed to spend 80% of my time as a candidate and if I'm elected as a member of Congress, dialing the richest people in this country and asking them for money. Yep. Now you tell me how I am going to spend 80% of my time talking to the top 10th of the top 1% people who X out for me and how I'm going to stay in touch if that's what I have to do, you know, with the people that I'm here to serve, which is every single Missourian, you know, whether they're rich or not, whether they're uh, healthy or not. Uh, I just, I don't see how that's 
system ends up serving people. And, and we see the result of that in, in the gridlock in Washington now. So, yeah, well, it, it's, like, it's a bit of a catch 22, though, isn't it? Because because here's the here's the I'm just say, speaking off the top of my head right here. But here's the conundrum you're going to face is if you don't take the money, you can't campaign and do the things that you really believe in. But the act of taking the money means that it's going to corrupt you. And I'm not, I'm not speaking you personally, you know, whether you're corruptible or not. But but the but the idea is that the people that aren't willing to play this game have a difficult time making it to the top, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to I want to sort of dive into that a little bit deeper and uh, realize, yeah, of course I have to raise money, but bear in mind as a candidate, as a political candidate, I am limited to taking a $5,800 check at maximum from a donor. And a grassroots movement, if, I, if I'm raising my money from small dollar donors, we have a program called Dollar for Democracy. And, and so we're building a movement over time that can sustain the fundraising that we need right now right? And what we need to have happen uh, in order to keep that system from, from eating itself uh, is really to, to have some kind of a pledge, you know, for me as a candidate. The problem isn't that I can take a $5,800 donation. That's not going to corrupt me. What's going to corrupt me is a super PAC that has the ability to spend $100 million on an ad campaign for me and they're going to take care of stuff that my campaign doesn't want to pay for exactly yeah that's going to be a problem I, you that's can't where, control the, that's where the corruption right? happens yeah. and so um we really really have to get contribution limits in place because when there are contribution limits uh that the whole system kind of corrects itself um, i'm also a huge fan from a policy perspective of um you know, having public financing for these things and um, having uh, the election process be thing that that where you get it's just not right for somebody who has the ability to write even a fifty eight hundred dollar check, which is you know fifty eight hundred times more than an ordinary American would be able to have represented, uh, but it sure beats a billion times. Um, but that's still an unjust system when it comes to getting um, representatives who are going to be a reflection of the people. Yeah. So I really think that we need to have public campaign financing so that we can have candidates who are out there going door to door and talking to our constituents and, and working to represent them, whether or not they're um, a brilliant Harvard scholar or somebody that needs a little more help. Maybe they have a, a mental health or, or another health condition that doesn't enable them to, uh, to be able to be, you know, at the quote unquote top of society, financially speaking. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that that's good. And I, I think that, um, how about the, uh, for the people lack though, isn't that, somewhat what you're thinking here and, and and i know that there's there's you know that's going to dovetail into a discussion about the filibuster of course but this for the people act i don't hear about it so much anymore because of you know covid and everything else and the infrastructure bill and everything else getting in the way but uh do you support this uh for the people act and would you support uh eliminating the filibuster or at least modifying the filibuster there's some very interesting ways to modify it 
uh, to get this act to pass through? I, uh, that, so another loaded question. You're good at these. Um, <laughs> for the People Act, I support a lot of the stuff in it, but it doesn't address contribution limits. And I have a big problem with the fact that it doesn't address contribution limits because from where I'm sitting, that's really the the key driver of the brinksmanship and the partisanship that's that's brought us to the brink of civil war. And we've got to fix that before we get to, you know, all the rest of the things are nice to have, but it's almost it almost feels deceptive to me if we don't get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is unlimited money in politics. Um, so I'm a huge fan of the For the People Act, but I think we need to uh, to get those contribution limits in there and, and include that in the passage of the bill. Um, regarding the filibuster, yes, I support uh, the notion of disbanding it in its current state because in its current state it has been abused and, and it is not doing what it is intended to do. What it is intended to do is be a, a, a check, you know, right. for the minority party to be able to ensure that we don't have the tyranny of the majority. And that's really important conceptually. And the Senate intentionally as a body moves slower than the House of Representatives. And so we have to have that conversation at the same time we have the conversation uh, as the filibuster, because if we completely abolish it and don't come back with some kind of a structure that allows those checks and balances to exist, then we just have a, a smaller and less representative House of Representatives in the, the Senate chamber. Yeah. That, uh, that really sets us up for some major risks. The biggest risk uh, would be, you know, every two to six years, we could see massive policy changes as the as the different factions and partisan groups vie for power um that that would create instability in rule of law it could create instability in trade policy it could create instability in uh, in the way that we approach healthcare and justice and sort of erode uh, the foundations of what allows this country to be great so we need to make sure as we talk about getting rid of something that's being abused that we that we replace it with something that creates the the check and balance mechanism yeah. uh, that the senate is designed to have in order to slow down policy in order to ensure long-term stability in u.s policy and uh, that's really important because on the international stage our word matters uh, with our trade partners, which is yeah. the important component of our economy. Our word matters with our allies and our strategic alliances, as we saw uh, with Donald Trump as he tried to undermine NATO. And even, um, you know, we can't have those policies trade, uh, we, we can't have our allies doubting. Right the full faith and backing of the United States of America. So we need to have that institutional stability. Yeah. And, uh, well, I agree with that. I think one of the one of the more creative ideas I've heard about the uh, filibuster is to keep the filibuster in place, but then you have to have 60% of the senators actually physically there yeah. to sit yeah. through, you know, the reading of yeah. um, Dr. Seuss or whatever, the phone book, whatever it is. to make it read. really hard to implement so that it's only something that gets used in an emer real emergency. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, I've, I've suggested this on Twitter before, and I got some pretty good responses from it. And um, it's 
so I'm going to approach you with this with this little nugget of thought right here is that if we had more than two parties, if it was a, um, a what would that be called? We'd call it a duopoly. I guess it'd be like a multiopoly or whatever you want to call it. If we had sure. more than two parties in there, the things like the filibuster may be moot because I've noticed that my wife is, she's from the Netherlands and I've noticed that the European government sort of create a environment where parties have to cooperate with each other and get uh, buy-in from multiple parties in order to institute some sort of major policy. And here it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it, it gets like a pendulum. It goes back and forth between Republicans for four years and Democrats for four years. And it's, this, this pendulum is yep. getting out of control. It's not dampening out at all. It's getting worse. So what do you think about that? What do you think about multiple parties and things like ranked choice voting and some of these more um, systemic changes to our democracy to help stabilize it? You know, I think the idea of multiple parties is really interesting and I would support it, but it, it's something that feels really difficult to achieve because uh, it, parties have been really the, the foundation of, of the parties happens at the local level. And uh, and so to have a strong third or fourth or fifth party, you would need to see that kind of organization happening, you know, in all 50 states and territories in order to have viability, in order to be able to get a, a coalition uh, right. form. That, and so that's, it, it's I also support it, but I just don't know how it would happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you, you need some systemic changes. One of them is the fact that we have plurality voting in this country where it's a binary choice, right? You you can only yeah. vote for one person. Things like ranked choice voting or multi-winner districts or, um, you know, multi, what do they call yeah. them, uh, yeah. five-way primaries or something like that. These kind of ideas yeah. uh, make it more possible for third parties. And I think also, and I'm, I'm a little bit steamed about the Democratic Party, honestly, as well as the Republicans in this issue, because <laughs> they put up barriers honestly, for third parties uh, to oh, sure. to enter into the fray. And, um, you know, and they've got the money because, well, as we talked about before, because of um, PAC money and whatever, they have they have the power and the influence to draw the the, uh, the district lines and things like that. So um, there's a lot of systemic changes that need to take place. But I, what I guess what I'm getting from you is like, yeah, let's let's look into these things. Yeah, I mean, anything that strengthens uh, representative government that's of, by, and for the people that guarantees equality for all is uh, is something that um, I'm open to. And we have laboratories around the world that we can look to. We have laboratories right here in the United States. Alaska just passed, uh, I think, ranked choice voting. And, yes. Um, and so we get to see how that plays out and we get to compare and contrast that to the, to the other uh, voting systems. And I think that we should use our learnings from that to inform how we move forward. Yeah, Alaska is interesting state because they're fiercely independent. And and as a result, they've created this environment recently. You, you mentioned ranked choice voting in Alaska. I think uh, Maine has it as well now. But Alaska also instituted this thing called top five primaries, I think, yeah. Or maybe it's top yeah. four. Wow. I mean, this is yeah. really radical stuff. So yeah, we've got a laboratory right here we can look at. Yeah. 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 And non and the idea of nonpartisan primaries is is pretty cool in terms of what Alaska is doing as well. Because what happens 
uh, is it aligns the candidates directly to their constituents instead mm-hmm. of who we need to raise money from. That's a very interesting and innovative idea in terms of, of what they've approached uh yeah. For the for the non part of you know, the top getters be going go into the general. And um that really creates space for a candidate that's out talking to his constituents in the state and not just a candidate who's able to go to New York and California and DC and get the dollar. Right, right. Get rid of the big votes or uh, or the electoral votes. Yeah, I've often said the, the way that the way that our system works out now is that if you're living in California and if you want to vote three times for president, you can do it legally. And the way you do it is you move to Wyoming because right? your, <laughs> your vote means three times as much insofar as electoral votes go. So, um, Oh, that's true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Wyoming is a great state to be if you want your vote to really count for president. Um, you have to put up with a bit of loneliness out there, I guess. But other than that, um, you got quite a bit of power. Well, we're going to move on here. I've, I've, I want to do one more thing called, called the action, call to action. But I have to apologize first because I think just before I came on the air here, I always try to make sure the house is really quiet. And I think I need to replace a battery in one of my uh, fire, uh, my, my smoke detectors. I can hear it beeping in the background. So, so just Actually, to let it be one of mine. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> oh, maybe it's one you're in. You know, I, I try to change these things that, uh, you're supposed to change them like at daylight saving time when it starts and when it ends or something like that. And I have the batteries right here, but, um, I got lazy. <laughs> so I just didn't change it. So it could be from my end too. I don't know. Um, Let's do the call to action portion here. What can people do to support your efforts on your path to the U.S. Senate position? Well, without saying these things cost a lot of money, we've got to get uh, the ability to reach 6.1 million Missourians, and that's going to take a huge ground game effort to be able to go door to door and make sure that we reach every single constituent in this state to get the word out. Um so give us uh, your dollars if you're in a position to do so. We've got a program called Dollar for Democracy. Uh, One dollar from a constituent means more to me than a $5,800 check uh, because okay. it's, it's a representation. That's number one. Number two, we need volunteers and we need help. Uh, so you can go to the website at tshepherd.com, T-S-H-E-P-A-R-D, and you can sign up and... Um, what we're going to need from our volunteers is phone banking, text messaging, going door to door and talking to your neighbors and friends and spreading the word and inviting them you know, to our events so that we can, again, get the word out there that we have a candidate who's really, truly aligned to the people of this state and uh, who's proven you know, in the face of having my livelihood stripped away that I'm not going to get bought uh, yeah. by, by, uh, by the powers that be. And I think that's that's mm-hmm. frankly the number one issue that everyone talks about is they're all corrupt. The whole system is bad. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, why bother? And uh, we're bothering and, and we want to help spread the hope and optimism that, that we're here working for you. Good. And what was that website again? That's tshepherd.com. T is in Timothy. And then shepherd is spelled S-H-E-P-A-R-D and then dot com tshepherd.com tshepherd.com great okay so uh, we've been listening uh, i'm sorry we've been talking with tim tim shepherd democratic candidate for u.s senator from missouri tim uh thank you very much for joining us today i wish you 
Good luck and lots of success in your campaign for the U.S. Senate position. I really thank you, Dan, and thank you for everything that you do. I hope you have a great uh, rest of your week and weekend. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you would like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode.